Hi, this is Thomas DePaulo. This is Dole. Hi, this is William Roy. This is Kevin. This is Jake Cook. Hey, this is Melon Bread. You're listening to The Green Box. This episode of The Green Box, we brainstorm ways to make the sanity and production systems run more smoothly. After that, we give our thoughts on sanity rewards after Delta Green missions. Finally, Kevin and Will discuss their personal philosophies and attitudes on Delta Green the role-playing game. Today, we have a criticism that is sometimes raised of the Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green family of games, and I didn't think about it that much, but uh, when I actually sat down and thought about it, I think there might actually be something to it, and I think it would be cool if we could spitball some solutions to it, because it clear we're clearly and i'm clearly not the only one who's thought of it because i've seen it, people talk about it before so the problem is and i'm gonna spin you a, a tale i'm gonna paint a rich narrative tapestry because that's what you do with tapestry you paint it uh, so let's say you that you're playing a tapestry you paint a tapestry with your words you spin the a words yarn. the words that i'm painting the tapestry with go a little something like this ahem four players see a monster four players need to roll sand Likely the handler has to tell them to do so twice, since not everyone is listening. Then the handler needs to tell them the sand cost for success and for failure, along with the source of the sand damage for adaptation purposes. This will also likely need to be repeated. Then the players who want to project have to roll and resolve that mechanical interaction. Usually at least one player will ask how projection works, because they haven't read the book, and the handler has to explain it again. Then, players who lost five or more sand, after projection has been taken into account, need to be assigned temporary insanities. Then... Everyone who has a disorder in lost sand needs to make a second sand test to see if their disorder is activated. Then, if it activates and they want to suppress it, they need to make a third sand test, along with a d4 of willpower for another die roll. The result is that the pacing and tension of the encounter goes straight in the trash as the result of the sanity mechanics. So, we, being people who think of the problems that we have with games and how we would fix them, I think can probably address this issue because I know that we are not the only ones to have it. Because I've seen lots and lots of other people say that this is what they don't like about Call of Cthulhu. And by extension, Delta Green. I I think right off the bat, you could probably roll those three sand tests into one, if uh, or at least into two, make your initial sand test, and then eh, maybe that doesn't work so much. All right, ne- next idea. No, we've talked about this. You're, you're right. We've talked about this, that um, the rules for activating and suppressing disorders are not... There's there's three roles where only one is necessary, and most of the time we're going to handle that narratively rather than actually using the rules of the book. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's one That's one fix. We've reduced... We've eliminated two die rolls from the equation. You know, you could also do something like save all your projections till the end, but that seems... That's crap, because then you don't lose willpower during the game. You don't lose willpower, and additionally, you cannot use projection to save off a temp, which is the primary reason it's used, in, in my experience. I mean, so I, I've never had this problem. Just I'll just say that straight up. Uh, mainly because if it started to bog down, I would just go go narrative with it. But usually, most, most of the time, the players are paying more attention to the sanity rules than I am. I'm busy trying to run a combat with a monster or or queue up the next horrifying player death. So usually, someone in the player side will pipe up, 
aha, roll sanity. And I'll be like, yeah, go ahead. And they're doing it while I'm doing the next thing. So I don't think it, to me, it doesn't bog the game down as much as this uh, rich yarn tapestry makes it seem to be. You're saying essentially that it doesn't bog the game down because you don't do it. Uh, I mean, I don't do it like, I don't do it as, as described by the by the scenario you set up, which is a like hard stop to the gameplay to allow for the roles to happen and then a hard res- resumption of gameplay. But you're you're saying that you you accept that a certain level of the things that are supposed to happen here will not happen because you are more concerned with advancing the adventure than with resolving the entire interaction in, to its absolute end. I think that's one way to turn my words around in a, in a way. I would agree with that. I also kind of agree with Elendil where I think the format we play in comes with... Um, a certain amount of like people already knowing a lot about the game. So I think it's also worth d- maybe discussing the fact that maybe taking uh, a narrative break to delve into the sanity of your characters is not a bad thing. You know, this game is less about fighting the monsters and more about the crushing, uh, horrifying doom that awaits us all. So instead of a hard stop for mechanics, you can turn it into a hard stop for narrative, which involves mechanics. And actually step out of combat for five, ten minutes and explain how insane someone is going. Maybe that's a good thing. This is a question that I'll ask right now. When someone projects, do you ask them in that moment to describe what it is that they're doing mentally to shift the burden of the sand loss onto their friends and family? Uh, I, I have sometimes, only if I know that person can handle that narrative weight. Does that make sense? Like, like If I think they would come up with a really cool explanation and and really sell their character i'll let them have that moment but if they're just there to roll dice then i'm not gonna ask them that yeah i i feel like i should as a handler but as a player i know i've just been okay this bond has the highest number of points i'm going to project onto them yeah that's i think the realistic explanation for why people do that i think the sticking point is like you said melon is that some of these tests you have to resolve because they can end up in a temporary insanity and so you can't really afford to put those off or kind of elide over them. So my thing would be probably in the moment, call for those tests uh, where just where the loss might possibly result in a temp, whether it's a max is a 1d4 plus 1 or a 1d6. And then anything smaller than that, if it's just a max loss of one point, the player can handle that themselves in the moment. You don't call for it or you can handle a follow up scene showing everybody saying, holy shit, we almost died. That's an interesting idea because I know that, yeah, a lot of people have said that, like, Ellen, you, you keep saying that you want to do all the sand tests for combat afterwards rather than doing it all at once while it's happening for this exact reason. I, I, I wouldn't say I want that. I say I, that's how it happens for me because I usually forget to roll them in situ. But nevertheless, that's how it works out usually. But like Taryn just said, because most of those rolls are below the threshold anyways, killing in self-defense is a d4, being shot at is a zero or one and so all that stuff will not affect your character's like playability during the scene so technically there's no reason that you need to roll it right away the only thing is that it could take you over a breaking point and i think the way it works is that if you hit a breaking point you are immediately in an episode of that disorder but that is not how everyone runs it yeah that's not how i run it because i feel like that could definitely bog down the game even more unless you're just automatically contracting that disorder I usually when I pick disorders for people, I, I wait until later because I don't want to go open the book. And unless I have something that's a really great, obvious choice, I don't want to open the book and start scrolling through various options to pick one. But then I've also had people actually complain directly to me that they wanted to be given their disorders right away so that they knew what their character should be doing in that exact second. 
as a result of their newfound damage to their brain. So speaking of flipping through the book, I feel like this is sort of a, a problem or a solution looking for a problem. I mean, even all the roles described, you know, seeing a monster, four players rolling, one of them having to roll two more times, that usually happens faster than I can open up the book to where the sand loss chart is. Um, I mean, that roll takes only a couple seconds, even if you have to say, hey, roll sand. So to me, it's just, it's just never bogged the game down that much. So uh, we've got, got two people denying it's a problem. But I do think there are problems with the sanding mechanics I would love to talk about. I think uh, this is a holdover because I'm assuming Call of Cthulhu invented sanity as a mechanic. And so people have just kind of pruned it and tweaked it a little bit. But to avoid this kind of thing, you might need to go back to the ground level and rebuild it. Was there sanity in the RuneQuest system? I don't think so. But uh, I think part of this comes with managing how much sand loss you want your players to take too. Because a temp will take even longer when your person who just goes and did temp has to flip through the book, fight, flight, or freeze. Know what happens with those mechanics. Well, no, you don't You don't have to know that because either the handler can tell you or they can roll a d6. Actually deciding what happens there is not the difficult part. Any one of these things by itself is fine. It's when they are all combined together that it produces this screeching halt. And you guys keep saying, like, I can't see this ever happening. This is a clearly a purely hypothetical scenario. I wrote it down because I've seen it happen. Oh, I, I mean, I, I believe, believe you. you. Yeah. I, just, I just think it's less... I think for the for the frequency of this happening, it's there are probably bigger problems to solve. But it's good to talk about. Kevin, you said that you had something else that you want to talk about regarding sanity that you thought was more interesting? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's more interesting, but it's I think it kind of rolls into it. Let me pose another hypothetical question for you. Let's say you come back to your apartment and you open the door and inside your whole family is murdered. That's pretty pretty jarring. Let's say you come back to your apartment and your partner is there and he's like, All right, Malin Bread, this is there's no easy way to tell you this, but something horrible has happened. Your family is dead, and we're gonna go get the guy who did it. But this is gonna be bad when you open the door, it's really bad. Don't you think while both of those would provoke a loss of sanity? One of those is a lot less mentally jarring. I don't know. I've, I've, uh, you, you, you just told me that you'd never been in the situation I described. I'll confess that I've never been in the situation you described. And <laughs> well, you never come home to a murdered family. <laughs> never come home to find my whole family brutally murdered. But I'll say this: um, I, I know what you're talking about here because you you mentioned it to me earlier that you wanted to make it more viable for a character to expose themselves to sand damage in order to mitigate the damage to other characters by giving them some context for it, like telling them that there's a scary monster or that a video is bad to watch. Yeah, yeah. If you look at like um, Night Floors, I think it is, the you can you know, you can look at a window and see something terrifying. But you can also glean some interesting information from it. So, you know, every every player wants to get gain that information because it's it's interesting information, but they don't all want to take the same sand damage. So, you, so the the players make a meta choice to say, "Well, I heard what the information was. I'll just keep that in the back of my head. I won't have my character look out the window." Whereas in reality, you should be able to have your character look out the window. And if you're the second person suffering that damage and you've been kind of warned, but to me, I would like step that down a die. So it's not it's not like zero sand loss unless it was a one. But if it was like a D six, it goes down to a D four, or a D four goes down to one, or whatever. I'll see if I can find some peer reviewed papers on whether being forewarned about a traumatic experience makes it better or worse. Yeah, actually, that would be super interesting to read. But I think it would be better. That's that's like the intuitive response is yeah, it would probably be better. I don't want to just go ahead and say that until I know. But but again again, like I've said before, it doesn't matter realism. Realism 
whatever. I think that the mechanic that you have just described is good for the purpose you just described of making players more willing to actually go and do the thing instead of just counting on one guy to do it and communicate the information to the rest of the team. I do also think, though, that the other thing you could do that isn't quite as good but still kind of works and I think is... Um, maybe something from for more of a handler who doesn't want to let the players off too easy is instead of making it actually a lower die you just shave off some of the first test and you attach to the second test so if you if it's like a d20 to see a shoggoth you can get you can get it stepped down to like i'm trying, I'm trying to think of a good way to arrange it because uh, you you get like credited for whatever sand you lost on the first test and you get the second test and the main purpose of that would just be to to reduce the likelihood of getting a temp it doesn't actually reduce the incoming sand damage it just um makes it less likely to incapacitate you. And again, this is partially to kind of try to eliminate some obvious metagaming that happens. Um, and not everyone does it, but sometimes you know your character is close to a temp or close to a breaking point, and you're just, you just you just won't take as many risks. Whereas in reality, it may not work out that way. And you should play your character how you think you should play your character, but I've, de- I've definitely seen some more meta player obvious choices in this realm than I have seen character choices. And I also think there would be a lot of ways this wouldn't be a given, like, if, if two characters hate, fucking hate each other, and one of them is like, hey, there's a bad thing through this door, and be like, you don't believe him, he's a fucking liar, you hate this guy. But if he's, like, your bonded Delta Green partner, it would be different. In addition to the point about, is this realistic from a psychology, neuroscience perspective, I was also going to say, what do you want to do with it dramatically? Like, if you want to kind of play it as one of the agents is sacrificing themselves and taking the full brunt of it to spare the group, then yeah, that might be that might be a good choice. But if you really want to play up the uh the horror and a little bit of the nihilism, maybe not. Like maybe they take a look at it thinking they can handle it and they still get the full blast. Like, you thought you were okay, you thought you can handle this, but <laughs> nothing is ever going to make this right. I probably so as an example, whenever somebody suffers a sand loss over four, I usually prompt them like, "Hey, do you wanna do you wanna project one? Because they may not know that mechanic, and two, they may have forgotten about it. With this mechanic, I, I probably wouldn't prompt them. I would probably, I mean, I would make sure I explain to them in the beginning of the game because it's a mechanic that I just invented. But I would make sure that you know they would have to consciously say, "All right, my character is good, has seen this thing, and is now going to try to make sure that he helps his team out by mitigating it for them." So I'm going to explain what's back there and, and make and sell it. Okay, now I'm kind of triggering the mechanic. I wouldn't be like, "So you saw the Shoggoth, uh, Heron? Do you do you want to tell your friends how bad the Shoggoth was?" Like I wouldn't give them a prompt. I make them work for it. Yeah, I think that's the better way of doing it. It's a reward for kind of looking out for the rest of the team. You said. I will remind the players of the projection mechanic because they may have forgotten or may not know how, not know how it works. You just described a mechanic that not only may they may have forgotten about it, it's not even in the book. So That's why I said I would explain that mechanic at the beginning, but I would not remind them in situ. That's fair, yeah. So my last thing on Sanity and something that we've talked about in Night of the Opera before, and it's something that I'm pretty sure is actually in Call of Cthulhu, but I've been looking through the DG books and I haven't been able to find it, and that's that you can't lose more than the maximum die size from seeing like a single entity, so that you don't have to you know roll a d6 every time you see a deep one, because it just gets silly after a while. I thought, and, and maybe this is exactly what you said, but and I just didn't get it, but I thought once you suffered sand from uh, from a given thing, you wouldn't again, at least during the scenario. So like, if you're fighting 50 deep ones, you're only going to take the sand loss the first time. That's the part that I'm not sure about. I remember what you're talking about, but I can't find it anywhere in the books. If it's not in the book, it's probably... Because I feel like Delta Green is a lot more erring on that side of... 
you think you can handle it and you really can't and is a lot more sparing with the supernatural overall. Like they explicitly chose not to call this stuff the Cthulhu mythos in the book. It's the unnatural because it's not supposed to be just straight things you pull from Lovecraft. It's supposed to be also whatever horrible things you come up with on your own. I agree, but I think also the, re- the reluctance to use those that terminology may be trying to steer clear of Chaosium's lawyers. That's entirely possible. So I can see the point where, you know, something like a, you know, a shotgun is just so terrifying that you're never going to be okay with it. But at the same time, like if you were playing a scenario where you had shotgun killing weapons and you've had to fight 50 shotguns, like the 30 of the shotgun, you're just not going to be freaked out by it. Like you're, you know, you're okay. So you know, this may be a scenario where you could step the sand loss die down until it's trivial and then you're not taking sand loss anymore. But I would be kind of, I think as a player, I'd be kind of pissed if it was like, all right. Another shotgun. Like, well, we already got one of these. We know what we're dealing with. I'm, I'm not really that, that afraid of it anymore. That's fair, but I also think that's kind of on you as the handler if it's just you keep throwing shotguns at your players and they get bored of them. Well, I mean, that was a, uh, that was a hyperbolic example. <laughs> I know. I understand. But that's my point. Like, I would mix it up a lot more than that. I wouldn't want to use anything so often that the players start thinking, wait, why am I still scared of this? Yeah, I definitely understand that. I mean, at least in the context of one scenario, I probably wanna, wouldn't want to use one monster more than once unless it was something very small. I think maybe the bigger problem I have is with a lot of double counting that can happen where there's a rule that says you see the monster, you make this sand test. There's a second rule saying you pay this sand cost for being attacked by a supernatural entity, and that's a separate test. And then there's a third thing where it says you pay this sand cost to witness a ritual and i've and this is not a hypothetical i've been in situations where i basically made sand test after sand test for the same thing happening because it was itemized three different ways it's like when someone sends you an invoice and you see the same cost over and over again repeated in different areas so ken height has some relevant advice in knight's black agents when he's talking about stability and maybe he's kind of lifted that from other gumshoe books like those written by robin laws but his point is if multiple things that trigger stability loss happen at the same time then just don't roll all of them just roll the one with the biggest potential loss his example i think was a swarm of rats suddenly digs its way out of the ground and then it devours one of your friends and then the rats all pile on top of each other into a gigantic human rat thing. Yeah, at that point, you don't care about the fact that there are rats anymore. Yeah, the fact that it ate your friend, the fact that it's now crawling into weird shapes is a little incidental to the whole thing. something that I found quite interesting. We did a recent run of Night on Owl's Head Mountain, and Night on Owl's Head Mountain is a scenario from Old Delta Green, and it has a quite extensive section on sand rewards at the end based on how the player characters handled themselves during the operation and what they did. And for those of you who are not familiar with this concept of sand rewards, you know, you get a D6 sanity because you solve the mystery. You get a D4 because you save the person's life. You get one for finding this specific clue. And it got me to thinking, you know, maybe this is something that just old Delta Green does, because I know it was quite common in Call of Cthulhu. And then I asked around about it and will you found out something that was quite interesting i did uh i looked at some of the old classic scenarios i looked at some of the crop of new scenarios and what i discovered was that there 
doesn't really seem to be a pattern of determining which scenarios do and do not have extensive sand rewards or even any sand rewards of any kind at all. Uh, it's not it's not a case of the the old ones have them and the new ones don't. As best as I can tell, it's not a case of you know some writers put them in and some don't. Maybe there is a pattern that I'm missing. Uh, if if our listeners know of such a pattern, uh, please leave it in the comments because we'd be very interested to, to find out about that. But uh, as best as we can determine, it's just a case of some of these scenarios have extensive tables of sand rewards and some of them don't and some of them have none whatsoever and there's not really any particular pattern to it. And it does make quite a bit of difference in the end result, mainly because it has a big effect on the shelf life of your character. If you have a chance to replenish all this stuff that you're losing outside of a vignette or home scene, then your traject the trajectory of your character is a much slower decline. And that's not just academic, I, because I, I was looking at, after we ran Owl's Head Mountain, after, after we played it, Will's the one who ran it, how I ended up with a character who had functionally only lost one sanity. I mean, he got far enough down to get a disorder, but then the reward buoyed him back up to full. And I thought about this, and I'll let you guys talk, I promise, in just a second. I thought about this because when I design scenarios, I almost never put sanity rewards in them, because it's just not something I think about when I'm writing them. But now I'm thinking, this may be a way to solve a game design problem that we've talked about, where the easiest thing is always just to burn everything, to destroy everything, don't bother trying to understand it, just, just scorch the earth. And that's probably why the designers put that stuff in there, is to say, what if we were to reward you with this metagame concept, admittedly, for doing a certain action in game besides just killing people and breaking things? And I think this is a very interesting prospect, not only because of how it can affect, totally affect the course of the game, at least if your characters know that same rewards may be a possibility, but also how you as a GM should hand out sand rewards for certain actions, depending on uh, when you're running a homebrew scenario, what is justifiable as what. I think everyone in this conversation has written at least one scenario for Delta Green, a fan scenario or a shotgun scenario or what have you. And has anyone put a table of sand rewards in their scenario? I can say almost definitely that I've not, although... Maybe in the course of running a game, I might have given one out just uh, impromptu. So this is interesting for me because when I first was writing scenarios or running shotgun scenarios, I would put them in there. And then after a while, I stopped doing it because I felt like people were getting too much sand from it that I wanted it to be a horror game. And so it was a little frustrating to see people coming out with the same amount of sand or maybe even more sand. And then I've come back around on that as I realize, well, this is actually a good way to reward players for perhaps picking the choice that the GM secretly wants them to take. It's a way to show your Delta Green agents that what they're doing is worthwhile, that this is worth them risking their lives for by providing the players with this, admittedly, like you said, sort of metagame resource that they want. I feel like although it's great to give sand rewards as I've, as I kind of said earlier, you have to balance it because in my Delta Green game, I don't want the agents or whatever coming out with more sand or equal sand that they started. Like I said, I don't think necessarily coming out of it with a hefty amount of sand is the problem. It's more in my mind, does the scenario have enough complexity and enough obstacles that they can come out of this justifying 
uh, a lot of sand loss? Like, am I just going to give them D6 sand, for instance, for completing the scenario? Or are they hoops they have to get through and there's a challenge involved with getting there? Also, in no way are we saying that how much sand loss you have in your scenario is a justification of how good or scary your scenario is. But quite the opposite, in fact, because my favorite scenario, Night Floors, doesn't even have a clear resolution, let alone a table of sand rewards. It does have a clear resolution. The resolution is breaking everything. Yeah, that doesn't solve it, though. I think that's a good point, that it is hard to write predetermined sand rewards for the conclusion of the scenario if you don't have, like a clear idea of how the scenario might end. I also think that using it to shepherd the players down a particular path, that's not quite the direction I would take it. And I'm, I'm, th- I'm, probably, I'm probably misinterpreting your meaning, but I don't want it to just be a railroad button. And I know that's not what you meant it as, but I, I worry about doing this because on the, one, on the one hand, we've expressed a desire to reward behavior besides just scorching the earth. On the other hand, I don't want it to be something where my ideal outcome is the one that gets rewarded because the point of the, this game is not to, to reach the ideal outcome. It's to create something unexpected based on the interaction of what you wrote with the characters people are playing. That's fair. I I did explain myself poorly, no, I, and it sounded pretty puppet mastery. I think I was just—I was just taking a um, a, re, a deliberate misreading in order to illustrate a concern that I had. And that's valid. I would say, yeah, it's more like if you just whip out all the guns you have and shoot up everything and blow up the monster, you'll get one point for just killing it. But if you take steps to get civilians out of harm's way and cover up any media attention and try to a plus one hundred percent the mission then you might get a D6 of sand to it. So here's an idea I just had, actually. So we've mentioned before, we really like the table of mission priorities that was in an early version of the Handler's Guide and is now included in Delta Green, A Night at the Opera, the scenario collection. Would there be any value to running sort of a debriefing with the case officer at the end and they review how well you performed on all the mission priorities, and you could get a little bit of sand for each one you completed. Are you talking about the list that was an observer effect, but was never actually in the Handler's Guide or the Agent's Handbook? That is probably the one, yes. Well, I think that you guys know that my philosophy is to minimize interactions with the case officer that the players have, but I do kind of like this alternate format where it's almost like when you, you ever play like a, I don't know, like a platinum game, like Bayonetta or killer is dead or whatever and at the end of the game you or the end of the game at the end of each of each map or whatever they give you like a this really elaborate payment structure based on how you perform in the game it's a completely terrible fit i think with the themes of delta green to do it the way that i just described but i still would like it i like the idea i've been thinking it but haven't been saying it out loud that the agents can s rank a mission that they will perform it flawlessly and they'll just keep performing it until they get it perfect but yeah the idea would be like you would be having conversation with your case officer and going down the list and then intermittently the gm would say okay you can get one sand back for this you could get 1d4 back for this here's an idea actually uh, would any of you guys do post-mission sand loss? Because I'm remembering, I think it's Let's Learn Aklo, which was a shotgun scenario that was fleshed out for the Unspeakable Oath. And at the end of that scenario, players can make a sand test once they've finished it. And if they succeed, they get to gain a certain amount of sand because they're pretty confident they've destroyed the threat. But if they fail it, they lose that much sand because they 
can't prove that the threat has gone away forever. Uh, I can think of another scenario that does post-mission sand loss. Music from a darkened room. Oh, you're right. If the agents burn down the Spooner residence and then later discover that somebody else has bought the property and is building a new house there, they lose sanity. That's good. I found the reference to debriefing in the Handler's book. It says here that the NPC Charles Bostick, the... Uh, disinfo agent will sometimes meet agents for detailed debriefing so that he knows exactly what to cover up and how. Oh, interesting. Now, how can we use these uh, debriefings, as we've said, to... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I try to minimize interactions with the case officer whenever possible. My thing for this framework would be specifically uh, in regards to interacting with the case officer... This wouldn't be a situation where the players are trying to get something from the case officer. It's where the case officer is acting as judge, and it's essentially a performance review. One thing I notice is that there's tables of sanity lost for things. There's no rule that I've been able to find, and maybe I'm missing something, for how much sand you would get back from things, aside from your vignettes. Uh, You mean other than the rule about when you kill a mythos monster, you gain back the minimum you could have? possibly lost that's yeah that's the only other one i can think of you could use the existing sample losses as a baseline but since a lot of those are zero one or zero one d4 you would have to do uh the successful result for them or you would have to invert it and make the failure result a successful result yeah it's probably pretty reasonable and most of these i'm just looking at the most of these are either one uh on a fail it's either lose one or lose like d4 I, I wouldn't give more than a D4 or a D6 in a sad reward unless it was something huge. Yeah. I mean, if you fucking destroy a Shoggoth, yeah, you get a... Or no, a, if you destroy a Shoggoth, you get back you get back one because that's the minimum you could possibly have lost from seeing a Shoggoth. No, you get you get the die back. We've had this conversation before. Oh, that's and I've right. Said, and, I've held, and I held the exact position that you're holding right now, and then you said, someday, Melon, you'll read the rules. And I, was, and I said, don't count on it. <laughs> I guess that day has arrived. And and look where we are now. I think you mentioned, you asked us earlier if scenarios that we wrote had sand rewards. I looked at some of the ones that I wrote, and the answer is no. The only scenario that I wrote that has an explicit sand reward is Last Night at the Opera, in which there's a guy on the side of the road in a snowstorm who's stuck, and if you, you help free his vehicle and send him and his family on his way, the agents gain one sand. I think that might be one way... Or a better way of doing it to let players feel like they are making a difference and being good people is to reward them when they do stop and take the extra effort. Because I've done, I've talked about before uh, how sometimes I feel like helplessness should also be that, like a sand test for failing to do the right thing. But that is probably a less heavy-handed way of doing it. I also think that uh, th- doing those kind of things is also uh, the little moments where the players think, oh, we're the good guys. I just think if you're a Delta Green agent, you have probably this thing inside you that compels you to help people. You're not necessarily just a break everything and kill everyone kind of person. However, the players may not be so kind. Yeah, your player might want to play like a combat-focused scenario or a character who's really good at combat. But, you know, you wouldn't have gotten in Delta Green if you just wanted to kill things oh man i get fucking guilty about doing bad shit in the scenarios occasionally even when it's all fake i'm trying to think of some time of a time that i've felt genuinely bad for some doing something bad in a scenario i'm trying to think of a time where you felt genuinely bad for doing something in a scenario too <laughs> yeah. um well uh i'm glad that you 
with your powers of mind control, have a vision into my subjective experience of how I feel about things. I, I do, because you frequently tell me that you regret nothing. That is accurate. I think that the last bad thing that I did that comes to mind was Agent Steven beating the shit out of the defenseless case officer. That was pretty good. That, that was, was pretty a good. genuinely really transgressive thing that that character did. It was. And Agent Steven was pr- was pretty fucked up, so that made sense. Mm-hmm. But that was a little unsettling, especially since it was clearly him like displacing his anger out of someone who didn't deserve it and it actually tried to help yeah, him. Yeah, the other three agents had to pull him off the case officer, if I recall. I have the line that I used in that situation, I believe, was, someone had better stop me because I'm going to kick until I see brains. Yes. Well, Melon, you're notorious for being a dick to case officers. Yeah, but they're notorious for deserving it. But this one didn't. That's why I feel bad in retrospect. Even though it was an imaginary character doing an imaginary thing. So, Will, Kevin, a couple episodes earlier we talked about our different styles and philosophies when it comes to writing and running Delta Green. And uh, notably absent from the conversation was you two. Would you like to take a turn, tell us a little bit about what you think about Delta Green and how it should go? It's actually super timely because on my Facebook today, in my memories, five years ago, I posted a pitch for a Delta Green campaign. uh, And I tried to explain in my own words what I thought Delta Green was. So it actually, uh, one, not much has changed, but uh, it's a timely topic. I know somebody, I remember reading somewhere that Delta Green is about guns, and then the kind of argument that Delta Green is not about guns. But to me, Delta Green is about badges. So one of the key tenets in my Delta Green is the idea of this hidden portion of law enforcement that is trying to investigate some sort of horrible thing out there. And they're not trying to solve the horrible thing. They're just trying to push it back one day, like buy humanity one more day. And it's that crushing at the brink of sanity, pushing it back, frantic investigation to figure out what's going on that I enjoy about Delta Green. I think, ironically, what I enjoy least about Delta Green is some of the weird Cthulhu stuff. I've often described it as a uh, a, a, a cop game where people just go insane. I always found humans to be the worst enemy. That's why I like stuff like the uh, Karyoteka or you know North Korean meth-producing gangs, etc., so I almost sprinkle in my mythos stuff as a necessary evil rather than a core concept of my games. Yeah, you got a hint at the bad stuff. I guess if you're not going to like bring it out full force. And that does seem to be where they're going with the standalone edition of the game. It isn't necessarily just a monster comes by and starts ruining everything. It's selfish people find terrible magic or technology or whatever, and they start ruining the lives of everyone around them. You know, the, uh, I still remember the first Elder Green game I played in, and I remember how my friend pitched it to me, which was, there's an old, pretty old uh, train spotting meme about Delta Green. It just runs through some of the horrible things and things you can find in Delta Green. And as I read that more, I liked each one a little bit more. I thought each one was a little more interesting. And uh, so to me, that meme almost encapsulates Delta Green for me choose the mp5 with all the attachments choose to put the N- the nro delta wetworks team get all the various properties and then choose um delta green at the end 
I like Chew's blazing away at a mind-numbing, sanity-crushing thing from beyond the stars, wondering whether or not you better off stuffing the barrel in your own mouth. What is a what is a glazer? I think glazers are like the, the, those like cop killer bullets, like Kevlar coated cop killers. Isn't that just a meme? I I thought I thought glazers were gamma ray lasers. That it, no, it's grazers. If you could find an MP5 to shot gamma ray lasers, that would be. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure a grazer is a graviton laser. So actually, I'm going to think correct it. A glazer is actually a frangible bullet, which is a real thing. Wait, that's just a hollow point then, isn't it? No, a frangible bullet is one that's made of uh, some sort of a material such that it, when it hits a hit something, it'll just no, like like blow apart. They're 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 usually they're usually used on ranges because they're more safe. Okay, but that is that is a hollow point though, isn't it? That breaks into H- pieces. Hang on, hang on. Let me finish the explanation. The reason you would use them if you're like Delta Green is that when you hit somebody, it would all the evidence would disappear. There'd be no bullets to recover. I thought they were used for um, for like blowing off door hinges and stuff. Yeah, they're used for that, and they're also used in a lot of cases for uh, at ranges because they're a lot. They don't leave metallic objects in your berm. I always describe them as like clay. They're not really clay, but picture like a clay pot impacting. It just goes shatters and you know pieces are everywhere. But isn't that kind of pointless when like? The projectile itself is not ballistically recoverable or matchable. It's always the cartridge casing that matters. I mean, yeah, it's definitely uh, it definitely feeds into the fact that this is just a meme, and it's it's a thing that it's a thing that someone would think a CIA works team would have because it sounds cool. Well, also, um, if we'll, if you'll recall, the conquistadors found that the Aztecs' obsidian weapons did not make much of an impression on their steel breastplates. I would be a bit concerned that my glazers would have a similar effect of throwing a handful of glass at a man wearing even the most modicum of protection. Oh, absolutely. But if you're uh, if you're a CIA agent, you're shooting someone in the face. I guess if you're shooting a monster, then... Or you're, you're double-tapping someone in the back of the head. But yeah, against like a bulletproof vest, I think a, a, a frangible bullet would likely be very, very ineffectual. But someone correct me if I'm wrong. Some listener out there, please send us a video of you testing this with one of your best friends. I'm doing a diversion into this because I'm trying to think of a way to constructively discuss Kevin's style of games that isn't that isn't like overly hateful on my part. Because I do like his games, but I think his style is the exact opposite of what I do. Well, and I do want to say, I, I think that my the, the small amount of mythos I sprinkle in I want to get better at sprinkling more in, but I just, one, as we know, I've never even read anything by Lovecraft. It's all my mythos knowledge is like, is tangential. So, I mean, I, I, I want my games, I still want to hold on to that, you know, law enforcement heavy, um, or, you know, or law enforcement adjacent scholars, doctors, military, etc. All the generic things we see in Delta Green. Uh, I still want to hold on to that investigation aspect i think it's really interesting to watch players have to skirt around another police investigation or have to investigate things and keep their bosses happy at the same time and i like that but i do want to make sure that my games also do have enough of the you know sanity crushing things from beyond eventually that they could be interesting and i would say that's probably where my scenarios are weakest but that's why i lean on folks at none of the operate here to uh, give me a good ideas for mythos stuff do you read any horror fiction even like New England homeboy Stephen King. Um, all the all the Stephen King I like is not horror fiction. I think I don't like his horror fiction, or I've haven't really haven't got through much of it. Kevin, can I suggest how more more wizard shit would um 
help your scenarios from a design perspective. The problem I always have with any scenario where every rascal in it is a human being, your scenario is technically solvable just by rolling farms over and over again. And it's and they can always be more complicated than that. like, oh, you know, you can't kill this guy for a specific reason, or you have to find out where he lives and, you know, where his secret drug compound is. But the benefit of creating creatures or magic or technology or whatever is that it forces the players to go beyond just blasting everything. Yeah, and I think one of the other tenets, if I can call it that, of my style of gameplay is that if the guns come out, you fucked up. But I also realize that you're you're not wrong. But there's also a lot of Delta Green games that are solvable. But I'm but I'm but I'm just thinking of every scenario I've played of yours where it involved a mandatory shootout at the end. Well, I mean, so and this also runs into, uh, I think my style is more suited to a longer campaign where you can kind of ramp up to where we're at. So there's a game I ran called Hard Candy about North Korean meth that I also ran here. Um, the first time I ran it, it was, I think I think it was three sessions. So the last session was a big shootout, but it took us two investigative sessions to get there, to put all the pieces together, to set up the raid in the compound, to get it all re- ready to go. When I ran it for Night of the Opera and some of you guys, it was more of a one-shot. We did it all in one session, so it was less, more compressed. But that's still, if your statement is, if the guns come out, you've failed, and the ending of the scenario the shootout is more or less mandatory. The only thing that I can think of that the players could do is get the, either get the guys with guns to go in there and not accompany them, like if all the players were roles that really didn't belong in a gunfight, or alternatively, if they were like from a rival crime syndicate and they could think of some, or not even rival crime syndicate, like a, like a, they approached the Norks as, excuse me, as, you know, allies or friends or whatever, and we would like to buy a whole bunch of your methamphetamine and then use that to come up with some contrived scheme to get the statue out. Yeah, I mean, and again, I don't want to get too detailed in the scenario, but uh, one, I reserve the right to be somewhat internally inconsistent. Uh, but also, you know, there there are non-gun blazing ways, ways to solve that, you know, sneaking in, stealth, subterfuge, etc. Um, I guess I'm, I guess, I guess when the, when the guns come out, you failed is less accurate. I guess more accurately, I would say if the guns come out before the finale or before the you know penultimate action that you failed. So while you may be able to solve while while shooting the guy at the end might be the the, the ending bit of the scenario, getting there, which is a lot of the fun, might take two or three two or three days of gameplay and might get you all this interesting Delta Green action. Which to me is like investigation and putting the pieces together and you know covering your tracks and that kind of stuff. I'm pick I'm picking on you for this, but this specific problem of saying that combat is not good and then making combat mandatory is a huge problem with both Delta Green and Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, for sure. Because it's in the in the the book. It's like if the you know if the dice come out and you're shooting people, something's gone wrong. And then I'm pretty sure almost every Call of Cthulhu and every Delta Green scenario at some point basically obliges you to shoot somebody. So, and you know, an- another I guess personal critique. So I mean, I'm pretty happy with how I write scenarios, and I'm not going to change too much. But I do want to grow. Um, when I read something like um, uh, something like Night Floors, the what what exists now at least. Or playing a scenario that goes into Carcosa in my head, I'm like, man, this is really cool. I would never ever even consider writing about this because it never crosses my mind. 
so I want to expose myself to more interesting uh, stuff because I because to me like an ultimate scenario might be this super cool investigation, but in Carcosa, so you're having to like investigate all this weird Carcosa and crap. That'd be cool. I'd like to do that, but I don't have enough of the subject matter knowledge. So I do. I probably should expand my horizons a little bit, but I think my games will always core up on uh, investigation. Well, you're so. I'm going to come back and defend your style because it is um, the closest to, I think it's, I think it's probably the closest out of our, out of our of us, out of all of us, uh, except for maybe some aspects of some other people's to what the devs want the game to be like. Like I, you know, I describe it derisively sometimes as go into a basement and find something that someone else did that was interesting 30 years ago. But I think that they, your specific emphasis on, that it's a human being that finds a wizard object and does a bad thing is the core of modern Delta Green's philosophy. And I'll also say that you don't need a depth of subject matter expert to make a cool monster or wizard or whatever, or magic or alien technology. You don't need to know anything about the Delta Green lore or the mythos. It is helpful, but if you can think of something that is thematically interesting and has a cool gameplay hook, you have done better than most game designers because my secret is that um, most of the source material is kind of just there as, like, I don't want to say circle jerking, but I guess it just did. But, like, a lot of it is, you know, a wink and a nod to, hey, look, it's that thing from that story you read. And if anything makes the scenario weaker by then giving it away to players who have read the source material. So anyway, you know, Will, you're you're the only folk we haven't really heard from on you know how you how you run Delta Green, how you write Delta Green. Tell us what you think about it. Uh, well, if when I have been asked to pitch Delta Green, I have described it in brief as it's a game about nihilism and existential dread. Oh, oh boy, I can't wait to play that. Honestly, that is the reaction that I get more often than not. <laughs> For some reason, people find that interesting. Um, what appeals to me about Delta Green, honestly, is that it's an excuse to bring uh, the Lovecraft mythos into the modern day. I like the Lovecraft mythos. I like the sort of... I kind of like that cosmic horror kind of flavor, I suppose, for lack of a better word. You know, that, that we're insignificant motes of dust on a little tiny speck floating through an uncaring cosmos, and the best we can ever hope for is to be ignored. Oh, it's too late for that. Yeah. <laughs> it was always too late. Anyway, I enjoy that. We've been beaming episodes of Steven Universe into the into the into the galaxy. We're screwed. Yeah. Pretty much. Um wasn't it wasn't um contact where the first transmission from aliens was somebody playing back the first wireless broadcast to us, which happened to be Adolf Hitler announcing the Olympic Games. Wait, what is, what is that? Uh, that that tracks contact with Jody Foster, I think. Yeah, that was that was a, that was a good movie. Anyway, um, so I sort of came to Delta Green via H.P. Lovecraft. I actually ran a bunch of Trail of Cthulhu stuff before that. I considered running Call of Cthulhu, but then I was like, you know what? No, this is disgusting. And why are there so many skills? And I have to roll how many times for for each bullet? And then I heard about Delta Green. I was like, oh, hey, it fixes all the things that made me never, ever want to touch Call of Cthulhu. 
So do you feel like you're ever tied to the mythos? Like, do you feel like you might have a really cool idea and then you go, ah, that's not consistent with this major part of the Cthulhu mythos. I can't do it. Uh, not really, no. Um, I feel like having that as a backdrop gives me like stuff to draw on, but I have rarely actually done things that pull directly from the mythos. Uh, do you think if you ran into a case where, where, that, where there was something you wanted to do that wasn't consistent, you would not do it or you would just say, screw it? This is my game. I'm doing what I want. Uh, I would do the latter. Um, as the my, my two previously published shotgun scenarios uh, would indicate, neither of them is based on the mythos at all. Although I think one is considerably better than the other. Which one do you prefer? The button. The button is way better. <laughs> I thought you said the button. I was like, what scenario is that? <laughs> That's all of yours. Yes. Wow, so much vitriol. Requesting a re- 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 requesting a, a boom gotum, sir. Uh, negative. <laughs> Only I can dole out boom gotums, and I will never boom gotum myself. <laughs> um, that's that's fine. I think that uh, got him. <laughs> and that's not how it works. Anyway, uh, I think will the your style is probably the other half of how they want it to be done because in the book and on the Patreon and all those other outlets for communicating information, there's all this advice for the handler about how to make um, the horror game. And I usually just ignore that because it's usually not yeah. worth it to me. No, yeah, that's, that's I lean way into that all the time. It's like if we could take Kevin and Will and combine them. I was just them. thinking that as Kevin was, as Kevin was talking about his bit. I was just thinking, you know, I would like to be able to expand a little more into the investigative like sphere of things, where most of what I do is, well, most of what I do is I run scenarios that other people wrote because I've written hardly anything. But... Oh, but you set up the mood real well, dude. Like. Uh, music yeah, yeah, and atmosphere. A little Barry, little Barry White, you know, candles, yeah, some rose. Some rosé. So I, I, I will say that I think the reason that I lean so heavily into investigation is I have a background in, you know, federal law enforcement, so it's easy for me to fall into stuff I know. Um, so that's where I end up. So someone who doesn't have that kind of background, it would be a lot more difficult, I think, to uh, piece, maybe to piece together like a, a logical investigative chain i think if you've seen some of the really good police shows or movies out there like the wire that really kind of get it right uh with that kind of knowledge you could probably do just as good a job if you if you wanted to lean into the investigative side i think that um it is hard for me to come up with a good uh compliment or critique of your scenario design because like you said you mostly run either published modules or things other people have written, which is very gratifying for me because it means that some pe- more people get exposed to my material. So definitely keep doing that. But um, you've written a couple scenarios. You have written The Button, which won the award for second place a couple years back. And you wrote another one about M-Epic. You do write some materials sometimes. Those materials are usually pretty... Um, one thing I notice is that they're often pretty light on explanation. That is deliberate. Tell us about this deep mystery. The reason I do that is because... 
as I think you said once, Melon, if you have expository text, the temptation from the handler is to throw it at the player at some point. I think that was that was, that was me. Yes, yeah. that. Yeah, I think that All was. Right, well, I will, if you write fluff I'll down, I'll fix that in post. If you write fluff down, you will read it to your players. The reason that I do that is because the thing that makes the mythos scary is that it's unknown. That that it's not something that we know. I guess the 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 more you the less you know about it, the scarier it is, which is a general principle of horror that I think we touched on in the episode where we talked about horror. So, um, my lack of explaining things is an attempt to keep things scary or at least uh, unnerving. Because my thinking is the more it's explained, uh, the less intimidating or frightening it will be. And also the more opportunity I'll have to trip over myself and and do something contradictory and then someone will go, aha, and then the immersion is ruined. So I kind of follow the same principle, but my... I think mine is just a little more lazy. Um, one, uh, sometimes I don't have a good answer about like how this is all coming together. I might have a good hook and a good bunch of players, and I might just go with that. Um, players in terms of actors in the scenario, not player characters. Um, and I've had interesting scenarios where I have just left a big blank under like what what is happening. And as my actual PCs go through and figure stuff out, if they have a great idea or they have a great solution... Hey, this is must be happening because of a rift that's opened up in hypergeometric space or whatever, and it makes sense. I'm like, all right, then yeah, that's you figured it out. That's what that's what's happening. Great. And if they don't come up with any cool ideas, then then uh, then they just don't know. You know. That is also an approach I use sometimes, where I sort of let the players come up with their own explanations. But what I'm careful to do, and Melon will understand why I emphasize this. What I'm careful to do is not to make that um, improvised explanation the thing that the entire rest of the plot hinges on. Yes, for sure. Yeah. It's more the, the fluff because around the edges. I know firsthand that can be really fucking irritating. Mm. Well, because basically um, this is... I almost want to say letting the players come up with an explanation for what is happening and making that, you know, the one that's actually true is a fun thing sometimes. I do think that it is something that I would expect more from other games that are not Delta Green because those are other games that emphasize like collaborative, the players, something more like Unknown Armies almost, where the it's incumbent on the players to build the lore of the world as much as the GM. I mean, I would say key to this philosophy is that the players can't realize that they're figuring out the answers and, and it's being made up in front of them. Well, it's a good thing you didn't record on a podcast that you did it, Will. Well, the thing that I was going to say was that what's key to this philosophy is that the explanation doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the monster is. It's going to kill you. That's also true. But they're nihilistic, man. Uh, like I said. <laughs> I, I don't like that philosophy either, that it doesn't matter what it is because it's going to kill you. Because if it doesn't matter what it is, then the whole investigative thing goes out the window. But even if it doesn't matter what it is, what does matter is its plan. The investigative matter isn't thrown out the window. I think it's important to focus on what the monster does, not necessarily what the monster is. Yeah, I was memeing, but um, even if we don't know what its origins are, we need to know something about what it, what its, you know, behavior is like. So so here's, here's an example. I'm just going to make, make one up off the top of 
it's an example I'm just making up to explain. Um, aren't all examples like that? So say the players are hunting this creature and, and it's been killing, it's been killing like prostitutes, right? And in in the handle is written down that this is the stats of the monster. Here's how it does its thing. It you know it came out of a meteor that hit the earth a thousand years ago, whatever. But the handler never really figured out why it's killing prostitutes. They just wanted that to be the hook. And one of your players comes up with like, oh, it must be tracking the, you know, the the perfume. They're all wearing the same perfume or whatever. Like, hey, that's actually a really cool idea. So you can run with that. And then the player will feel smart about figuring that out. You never intended it. It doesn't really spoil anything. It just adds a little, another little nugget of truth to their investigation where they realize oh, that's what it's tracking. And then when they set up a plan to try to capture the thing, they can use a perfume. That, that's awesome. I'd love to reward a player for that. But if you wrote that down ahead of time, chances are no player would ever stumble on it. You just made more work for yourself. So those are the kind of things I like the I like to let the players kind of figure out. Or I like to reward them figuring out. But the player who figured that out would never know that they invented that new you know feature of this monster. I think that's a good direction to take. My concern is what we mentioned earlier about... Um, tying yourself into a particular explanation well i mean so if 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 they say ah oh, it must be tracking the perfume you can be like yeah it sounds like a good idea and then it can attack a random trucker and then they're like crap we were wrong no so you never really stuck to it just gives you the tools to use it if you wanted to uh, i i did find just to kind of step back for just a second i found and ask me anything by some of the double green uh writers like from like a year ago um, and it's it's funny because it's it's a mix of Delta Green is you know Lovecraft cosmic horror and exploring human fragility, and the other mix is highly trained federal, federal agents way over their heads investigating confronting terrors from beyond reality. So I think ironically maybe Will and I both have half of the solution. I think the combination is really what makes it work. It's the fact that you are above average for a squishy human. You are a very competent person in your field. And yet when you're confronted with the vastness of these forces, you still can't make a difference. I think that's my biggest philosophical disagreement of all. Because frankly, if I didn't wasn't able to make a difference, I wouldn't run a game about it. Like, that's... That's my core is my core philosophy is that the players should have some reason to interact with the world. And that's why I'm trying to back off from the adventures where Delta Green's involvement only makes everything worse, because that just reinforces the philosophy of do nothing. That it reinforces the adaptation to helplessness. Is but is is buying is your is, is buying humanity one more day a worthwhile cause? Even if they know that on day th- day three they're still screwed? Yeah, I think that's important for players to work out for themselves. Do you choose to think, like, if you keep pushing it back one more day and one more day and one more day, it will never happen? Or are you the kind of player who slowly descends into, it's going to happen tomorrow anyway, so there's no point to any of this? I mean, I think you keep pushing it back, but then as you lose sanity, you realize that eventually you're not going to push it back. You know, there's going to be a day where you fail and then everything's over. But you, if you push it back 10 days, you've bought everyone else in the world nine days of happiness they were not going to have. And that's what makes it worth it. How do you know How do you know it was nine days of happiness, though? How do you know that they did? They, there weren't some people who were actually wishing that the world would end right there because it wasn't worth it? Well, I guess the question is how many of those people are there versus people who had nine decent days? I guess you got, you got, oh, so, so you're, saying, you're, saying, you're saying that you do believe that utility aggregates 
Am I? I guess I am. We're trying to that, do yeah. the well, greatest present, good. Present, let's see. Let's see any evidence for that. So, uh, you know, just go ahead and solve population ethics for me. I mean, I think this proves my point. I, I think we'll do that in a later podcast episode. That's good. Um, it's uh, the sky devil and the population ethics. In the meantime, I do think that in my games, I basically don't bother with that at all. With saying, you know, you, you save in the world or you push back the apocalypse another day. I just try to think of a more interesting uh, near-term consequence for failure. Do you think, I mean, as, as, sorry, so I mean, I know you as someone who just runs a lot of one or two shots, you know, in in here. Do you think if you were running a longer campaign, of you had you had, you know, 15 games over the course of a year planned out, that you might hinge more on the longer term like pushing back the horror or would you stick with the near-term rewards as long as it was very as it was very obvious that the players were making some appreciable difference in the game world because then yeah because one of the other things is that um you can look at it from a meta perspective like oh i got rid of this um this monster or this cult or whatever that was trying to do the bad thing but how many more of them are there going to be that we don't catch like, uh, what was it that the IRA told Margaret Thatcher? Uh, you got lucky today, and you can keep being lucky, but we only have to be lucky once. Yes. Uh, well, look at a scenario like uh, Observer Effect, where the players firsthand get to experience the bad ending and then try again. So at the end of that scenario, assuming that, that everything goes well, um, or relatively well, you know, they, they know that they've stopped this horrible thing from happening, but I think they're also left with a sense of that this thing is constant and we'll be back. Well, um, that's a fun one to bring up because I don't like Observer Effect. I think that it ha- it's a Groundhog Day scenario, and those aren't very good. However, I do think that that mechanic works really well for what you're talking about because in Observer Effect, you live through several realities where the world ends. Whereas I think, I think it's probably still my favorite. <laughs> really? Well, yep. well, you guys know what my favorite scenario is. Artifact Zero? Yeah, it's Artifact Zero. Very funny. Thank you for joining us in the Green Box. Connect with us on Twitter at 9mm Retirement. Like us at The Green Box on Facebook. And head over to the Night at the Opera, that's all one word, subreddit, where you can find links to play with us on Discord. Be seeing you. <laughs>